Amen. What a great truth. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for that truth that we can hold on to. We know that this life, this walk, this journey will not be an easy one. We know there will be dark clouds and turbulent waters along the way, and some of us may be in the midst of those today. We know our lives will not be free of trials and and testings and hurts and tears along the way. We can't expect to avoid them. Lord, but one thing we hold on to, no matter how dark our struggle may be, no matter how difficult our circumstances and trials, You will show up. You will be there to take us through every storm in our path. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Thank you for that promise. Visit with us now, Father, as we study your word. Give us open ears, minds, and hearts, and speak to each one of us. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, a few years back, our brother Ray gave me a video about Sir Ernest Shackleton and his ship named the Endurance, aptly named. Now, I'd never heard of Shackleton nor nor his ship, but after watching his story, I was amazed at his journey of perseverance and endurance. Sir Edward Shackleton rose to fame in the early 1900s as a seasoned Antarctic explorer, but he had one goal. Shackleton had one single goal, to lead the first trek across the Antarctic continent. In 1914, after months of fundraising, he went to Norway's best shipyard and he bought a new 300-ton wooden barkentine, the Endurance, as fine a vessel as it ever sailed ice-infested waters. And, And likewise, the men he selected were like a dream team of sailors. They were the best available seamen and officers. Twenty-seven men were selected. And on August 1st, 1914, they set sail from London down to Argentina and then towards the Antarctic. Two days later, they encountered heavy but loose pack ice. Using the vessel's engines and sails, they drove into it. But it got worse and thicker, and eventually the crew began to walk ahead of the ship and manually break up the ice. Progress was slow. Then on January 18, 1915, when they were close to Antarctica's coast, the pack ice encased the ship, encased the Endurance. She could only move slightly, listing to one side, lifting a bit at one end or the other. For the next ten months... The ice carried the vessel and her crew hundreds of miles north, off course, in the general direction of South America. Without radio contact, they were cut off from the rest of humanity. And the emotional wear on the men was a constant challenge to the captain, to Shackleton. He confronted the beginning of a mutiny. He reconciled fights. He, He built unity by exchanging his perks as the top officer, with uh, for the common chores of the lowest crew member. But eventually, the endurance was no longer able to withstand the, the forces of the ice flows and the monstrous pressure ridges. The hull began to implode. Shackleton realized it was a lost cause. The endurance would never take them home. So he gave the order to abandon ship. 
And the men removed three lifeboats and as much of the ship's supplies as they could carry as the twisted and splintered remains of the endurance sank to the bottom of the Weddell Sea. The men survived for months in the frigid wild, camping where they could, and eventually the ice began to thin and, and became treacherous. Hungry killer whales became a big threat. One night Shackleton had to pull a man still in his sleeping bag out of the frigid sea from the jaws of a killer whale because the ice had broken. And on April 9th, now 1916, Shackleton gave the order to launch the three lifeboats amidst the flows, icebergs, and the killer whales. The plan was to sail north. It was minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit. The South Atlantic Sea was raging. During that week, the men endured the worst, most abysmal conditions possible. One sailor collapsed. Another one developed frostbite that led to gangrene. In a few days, they landed on Elephant Island, but it turned out to be a barren outcropping. It offered nothing in the way of food or water or even shelter. Some men wept. Others struggled to stay sane. Something had to give. Shackleton took his two healthiest men and went on a last-ditch desperation attempt. And when they could no longer sail, they began on foot. They began climbing the mountains. And without the benefit of one real meal or a tent or an hour's worth of sleep, the three pressed on for 36 hours until they walked into the same whaling station which they had set off nearly two years earlier. It was now May 20th, 1916. And once the captain, once Shackleton had found rescue, he wasted no time in returning to rescue the rest of his crew. They were living under the two overturned lifeboats and subsisting on a broth of water and penguin carcass. Death was near. Three times Shackleton tried to reach his men, but pack ice stopped him. Finally, using a borrowed Chilean vessel, he found an opening in the ice. He got through and he rescued his men. It was August 30th, 1916, more than two years after they first set sail. Miraculously, not one man perished. Shackleton left with 27 men on board and he ended up returning with all 27 men. Two years later. He never attained his goal. In fact, Shackleton never once in any of his voyages attained his primary objective. So vocationally, he was a failure. But history judges him a hero for his perseverance through the trial he endured. As an explorer, he may have been a failure, but as a leader, he was a spectacular success. The trials and testings of his voyage produced his legacy as a hero. You know, we're such a result-driven society. But sometimes the victory is in the journey, not so much the outcome. It's the same in our spiritual lives, isn't it? The testings and trials we go through, the mountains we face, the obstacles shape us into the men and women of God that He wants us to be. The most important result of the trial isn't how it ended, but what it did to us, how it worked in us. How did we flex our faith while we were in it? How did we exercise our trust in God? How did we exercise our faith in the midst of the trial? Faith. It always seems to come down to faith, doesn't it? 
The most important attribute in our spiritual lives is faith. Faith is the cornerstone of the Christian walk. Look at the importance of faith in the Christian life. Scripture spells it out so well. Faith is the key to our blessings. Matthew 9.29 Then He touched their eyes saying, According to your faith, let it be done to you. Faith is the key to our answered prayers. Matthew 21.22 And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Faith is the key to overcoming obstacles. Mark 11.22-24 And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Faith is the key to pleasing God. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Book after book, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, Scriptures are filled with information that teaches us the importance of faith. How critical it is in our lives. So given this, we can all echo the request asked in Luke 17.5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. That's what we want. But how? How does our faith increase? How does our faith grow? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? It brings us to our main text this morning. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1 or look up at the video screens. We're going to read James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. That's it. The testing of our faith produces something. Perseverance, endurance. Our faith becomes productive. Our faith grows. Our faith develops. You know, without tests, it's all theoretical, isn't it? We're like students who have no real world experience about anything. We've all been there. We've read about it. We've studied it. We've theorized about it but we've never experienced it. Tests put our knowledge to practice. We exercise our faith. We practice our faith. We live out our faith. We put into application everything we know, everything we believe, everything we've studied, everything we've learned and we hold on to. Tests then should not be seen as persecution. Right? We need to change the narrative. Tests are an opportunity to increase and grow our faith. Make no mistake about it, when I, when I speak of faith, I'm not referring to faith in God to get us out of a bad situation. It's faith in God to take us through whatever He thinks is best for us. Oswald Chambers wisely said this. He said, faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. 
Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. Because there are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. Job, in the midst of his trials, rhetorically asked the Lord in Job 7, 17-18, What is mankind that you make so much of them, that you give them so much attention, that you examine them every morning and test them every moment? What a privilege then to be given the opportunity to increase our faith. First Peter 4.12 and 13 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Today we're going to look at tests of faith. We're going to look at four different tests of faith. We're going to learn to identify them and what to do in the midst of each one. Our first test, tests of demands. In the New Testament alone, there are over 1,000 commands that God asks us to obey. Some of them are inconvenient. Do good to all. Some of them seem unreasonable. Don't worry about anything. Some of them seem downright impossible. Be thankful in everything. Love those who persecute you. Come on, Lord. Has God ever asked you to do something you didn't want to do? He will. He will. God will ask something of you that you don't agree with. Sometimes God will ask you to do something that seems unreasonable to you. God will ask you to do something that seems impossible to you. And, and we in our humanity and in our human nature, we get so hung up on the how of the ask that we forget the why. How, how am I going to do this? In these moments, we've got to remember that tests of demands are there to test our faith. And through them and our compliance in them, our faith will grow. Here it is, an opportunity. See, the bottom line in these tests of demands is a single question. We've got to ask ourselves, who am I going to believe? Who am I going to trust? Am I going to trust what I think is right? Or am I going to trust what God says is right? Am I going to trust what my eyes tell me? Or am I going to trust what God tells me? Am, am I going to trust the myriad of voices around me? Or am I going to trust the only voice that matters? How many examples can you think of in Scripture where God asked something of someone and, and they trusted Him? They didn't understand. They couldn't make sense of it all. They didn't know how it was going to work out. But they trusted and they obeyed. They trusted the one who not only was making the ask of them, but was making the way for them. Noah. Think of Noah. He was asked to build a massive boat to gather all the animals because something called rain was coming. Abraham. Abraham was asked to leave his homeland and go to an unknown place. Moses was asked to to go back to the place where he was a wanted criminal and lead his people out of slavery. 
The disciples were asked to leave it all. Leave behind their jobs, their families, their homes, their friends, and follow a man named Jesus. Did they completely understand? No. Did they completely agree? No. Did they trust and obey? Yes. It's a risk. Faith is a risk. Any, anything we don't completely understand in advance and we step forward into is a risk. Why, why would God ask us to take a risk? Well, God isn't interested in making us comfortable. He, he isn't interested in making us confident in our surroundings. He wants our faith. He wants our unconditional trust in Him. So how did these heroes of faith respond? They obeyed. They followed. They trusted. By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went. By faith, Moses obeyed and returned. By faith, the disciples left it all behind and followed Christ. And what were the results? Take a look at them. Read Hebrews 11. Look at Hebrews 11.7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Hebrews 11.8 and 12. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. Over and over, again, through Scripture, we see God's demands, man's response, and the outcome. In obedience, there are countless blessings. There's the increase of our faith. There's a legacy of success, a legacy of faith. In disobedience, there's a slippery slope to defeat, distrust, and destruction. Here's the thing. After Noah built the ark, loaded all the animals, experienced the floodwaters, and eventually was rescued by God, what was his faith level after that? Off the charts. You can bet there wasn't anything God would ask of him that he didn't jump into. Why? Because he'd seen the fruits of obedience. He'd seen the blessings of faith. After Abraham moved and found the providence of God, how did his faith increase? After he saw God's providence come through, after he saw God bless them with a child, his faith was monumental. And, and we see that. We see it when he obeyed God and took Isaac up the mountain. He knew God had a plan no matter what his eyes told him. Obedience in the tests of God's demands produce unparalleled faith. Don't get hung up on the, how am I going to do this? Don't get hung up on the, I don't think it's the right thing to do. Don't get hung up on what your eyes see. Don't get hung up on what your friends say. Focus on obeying the ask and leave the rest to God. Amen? Always remember, in tests of demands, that God knows better than we do. So what do we do when He demands something of us? We trust His knowledge, not ours, not our own. We check our pride at the door and we trust 
the Creator of the universe. Amen? That's our first. Tests of demands. Our second, tests of difficulties. So often we think if we, if we pray to the Lord, if, if we stand for the Lord, if we trust in the Lord, He will spare us from the difficulty and pain of trials. We pray and long for God to, to bring the blessings and, and withhold the difficulties. We pray for Him to bring a miracle and heal our disease. But what if the difficulties are the blessings? What if the disease is the miracle? What if through the pain and the fire and the trial, we become the masterpiece? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stood for God. These young boys, they, they did what was right. They honored the Lord, and you know what? They still were thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel stood for God by getting on his knees in prayer, and he still was thrown into the lion's den. They weren't spared from the trial of difficulty, persecution, and suffering. But what was the result? God showed up. God walked through the fire with them. In the end, they survived. They learned more about God's providence and presence. Their faith grew. They were elevated in position in this world. And God was glorified and honored. The furnace which could have crippled their faith, which could have claimed their faith, refined them into mighty vessels because they trusted in the One who was greater than their furnace. First Peter 1, 6-7 explains it this way. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God wants to refine us. He doesn't want to harm us. He wants to change us for the good. Isaiah 48.10 says, See, I have refined you. Though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. What's the furnace of affliction? You've been there. Perhaps you're there today. The fear that can grip your heart. The tears that fall as you cry out to God. The aching in your heart as you contemplate your circumstances. The knowing that there's nothing more you can do in your own power. The heat is on. The pressure is on. The furnace is very real. The Bible frequently compares our problems and difficulties to a furnace. The furnace of a refiner's fire who heats it up so high that the gold and silver melt and all the impurities are burned away. I'm sure you've heard the story of the old silversmith who was once asked, how do you know? How long do you keep the fire on? How do you know when the impurities are burned away in the silver? And he said, when I can see my reflection in it. When God can see His reflection in you, then He knows that the impurities in your life have been burned away. But friends, that's a, that's a test. So, so what do I do? 
What do I do when I'm in the midst of difficulties? What do I do in tests of difficulties? How do I respond? Trust in His purpose. The difficulty you're going through is serving a greater purpose than you can ever imagine. It's refining you. It's changing you. It's shaping you. It's growing your faith and refining your character. It's making you more like Jesus. And that's the greatest goal to which we can ever strive. Charles Spurgeon illustrated that in ancient times, a hit on the ear given by a master to a slave meant liberty. He was free. Little would the freedman care how hard was the blow. Likewise, by a stroke from the sword, the warrior was knighted by his monarch. Small matter was it to the new-made knight if the royal hand was heavy. When the Lord intends to lift servants into a higher stage of spiritual life, He frequently sends them a severe trial. He makes His Jacobs to be prevailing princes, but He confers the honor after a night of wrestling, and He accompanies it with a shrunken sinew. Be it so, who among us would wish to be deprived of the trials if they are the necessary attendants of spiritual advancement? The difficulty has a purpose. Trust in the God who has designed that purpose. Amen? Tests of demands. Tests of difficulties. Our third test. Test of distractions. Focus is one of the hardest things in life to be consistent at, isn't it? How many times do we walk into a room we forget why we, we went there? It happens. Especially as you get older. Don't laugh, kids. You'll get there. Why? We're distracted. We're distracted by pursuits. We're distracted by thoughts. We're distracted by other people. There's a million reasons in life to be distracted. I always teach my kids, if you can learn one thing in school, it doesn't matter what the subject is. If you can learn one thing, learn how to focus. If you can learn how to shut out all the distractions around you and focus on any single task at hand, you will go far in life. In today's world, we have a crisis of focus. It's a dying art. It's a lost art. The concept of focus is quickly passing us by. Look at how we use our phones. We start with a clear purpose, right? This is a tool. I want to look up Brad's number. So I I pick up my phone, I go to my contacts, bing, oh, I have a message. I read the text text message, this leads me to a social media app, and I see something my friends posted. Hey, I have something funny to post too. Where did I put that photo? Go through my photos. Oh, you know what? It was in an email. I go to my email. Pretty soon, it's been an hour, I still don't know what Brad's number is, and I've forgotten why I need it. We are a distracted society. And the same is true in our spiritual lives. We begin with great intentions. We want to spend time with the Lord. We we want to grow in His knowledge. We want to attend church regularly and fellowship with believers. What happens? Distractions. Pursuits, jobs, hobbies, television, email, friends. And the great intentions that we had are quickly lost in a sea of divided time and pointless pursuits. We tend to think of them as nuisances, but you know what? 
Distractions can be very dangerous. Distraction, at least the dangerous kind that I'm talking about, is shifting our focus and our attention from something of greater importance to something of lesser importance. We shift our attention orientation from the greatest object in existence to countless lesser ones. Pastor Tim Challey summed it up well. He said this. He said, all of this distraction is reshaping us in two very dangerous ways. First, we are tempted to forsake quality for quantity, believing the lie that virtue comes through speed, productivity, and efficiency. We think that more must be better, so we drive ourselves to do more, accomplish more, be more. And second, as this happens, we lose our ability to engage in deeper ways of thinking, concentrated, focused thought that requires time and cannot be rushed. Instead of focusing our efforts in a few directions, we give scant attention to many things, skimming instead of studying. We live rushed lives and we forget how to move slowly, carefully, and thoughtfully through life. Boy, that's a, that's a picture of our society today. It's a picture of us. So how do we conquer the distractions? How do we focus? Well, we keep our eyes and our minds squarely on God, squarely on His plan and His path for us. We trust His plan for our lives and we prioritize all those other things accordingly. Everything we spend our time on, our money, our efforts, our hearts, it should all be held up to the light and the test. Is this in line with what God wants for my life? Is this helping me? Is this helping me stay on the path that God has ordained for me? We have to stop investing in most every matter and focus our attention on what matters most. Amen? So often we tend to invest here and there and everywhere. We want to be all and we want to do all. And we find that we're spread so thin, you know, we're not doing anything well. One of the greatest things we can learn is how to say no. How to say no to things that don't matter most. Every no we say to a distraction is a yes we can say to things that truly matter most. Trust God's plan for your life. Focus on what He wants you to do right now and tune out all the other noise, all the other distractions that come. That's a fantastic recipe for living for Him, for growing in Him, for increasing our faith, and for staying on the path and the plan that He has ordained for us. Amen. Tests of demands. Tests of difficulties. Tests of distractions. And our last test, tests of delays. Have you ever noticed that some rooms seem to speak for themselves? Walk into a new, freshly decorated nursery prepared by proud parents and immediately the room speaks of joy and anticipation and excitement. Enter into a cozy den on a cold winter's night with a large fire in the fireplace casting shadows. There's a, an invitation to come in, to be welcome to sit down, to enjoy its atmosphere. Walk into a dining room right before Thanksgiving meal and smell the food, hear the sounds of friendly voices, and the room reverberates with warmth and welcome. But other rooms are not nearly so inviting. Some rooms are distinctly lonely 
regardless of how many people may be in them. Rooms where a frightening uncertainty prevails. Those are the waiting rooms of life. Do you find yourself in a waiting room today? Things didn't happen how you wanted or when you wanted. The answer didn't come in the time you needed. And now you find yourself in a waiting room. Delayed. These are some of the hardest, toughest tests of life. There's no expiration date on waiting. We wait without knowing when the wait will end. It's difficult. It's heart-wrenching. Joseph knew a thing or two about that, didn't he? He had great dreams, great plans, great visions that were all put on hold with one blow after another blow that life dealt him. He went from the pit to the prison with no end in sight. He prayed and he cried out to God, but he received no immediate answer. It's easy to lose hope in blind waiting, isn't it? It's easy to get discouraged. It's, it's easy to lose heart. But it's critical to remember one thing, that our timing is not God's timing. Trust His timing in tests of delays. Joseph had to go through the pit and the prison before he reached the palace. And you know what? Had he known exactly when that palace position, that appointment would come, had he known exactly when, his faith would not have grown one ounce. It's in the waiting that our faith increases. Trusting God in the dark is the greatest way to build up our faith. And when the answer comes, and it will come, you'll find you have a faith that can weather the next storm. You'll find you have experience to draw upon. You'll find you have a newfound compassion to help others in their waiting. In the end, you will realize that God's timing truly was perfect. Trust His timing. And you know what? There's as, as much to be said for how we wait as there is for the waiting itself. You can wait with grumbling and complaining and bitterness and let the delay get the best of you. You can wait but try to manufacture your own solutions to end the waiting. Friend, that's not waiting on God. We must wait with patience and expectancy and act only when He tells us. G. Campbell Morgan said, Waiting for God is not grumbling. Waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means first, activity under command. Second, readiness for any new command that may come. And third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. That's it. Wait patiently on God. Act only when He says and trust His perfect timing. Amen? Tests of demands, tests of difficulties, tests of distractions, and tests of delays. All of these will grow our faith if, if we let God use them. If we do the right thing in them. If we remember that in tests of demands, trust His knowledge. In tests of difficulties, trust His purpose. 
in tests of distractions, stick to His plan. Trust His plan. And in tests of delays, trust His timing. It's always perfect. Friend, do you find yourself in a trial today? Take heart. God has chosen to grow you through it. God is taking you on a journey to increase your faith. And the greatest comfort we can take is knowing that not only does it serve a great purpose, but the master of the wind is in the boat with you. He's sailing with you. He will carry you through the storm. You need only to trust and obey Him. In the end, we will look back and we'll be amazed that our, our small mustard-seed-sized mustard faith ended up moving that mountain. I'll close with this poem. Lord, I've never moved a mountain, and I guess I never will. All the faith that I could muster wouldn't move a small anthill. Yet I'll tell you, Lord, I'm grateful for the joy of knowing Thee and for all the mountain moving down through life You've done for me. When I needed some help, You lifted me from the depths of great despair. And when burdens, pains, and sorrow have been more than I can bear, You have always been my courage to restore life's troubled sea and to move these little mountains that have looked so big to me. Many times when I've had problems and when bills I've had to pay and the worries and the heartaches just kept mounting every day. Lord, I don't know how You did it. Can't explain the where's or why's. All I know, I've seen these mountains turn to blessings in disguise. No, I've never moved a mountain for my faith is far too small. Yet I thank You, Lord of heaven, You have always heard my call. And as long as there are mountains in my life, I'll have no fear. For the mountain-moving Jesus is my strength and always near. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful for the tests of our faith. Tests that we know will produce something great. Tests that teach us how to trust You deeper. How, how to know You more how to live closer to You. Help us in every test of faith to keep our eyes focused on You, to trust Your knowledge and power in our tests of demands, to trust Your providence and Your purpose in our tests of difficulties, to trust Your handmade plan in our tests of distractions, and to trust Your perfect timing in our tests of delays. Thank You, Father. Thank You for loving us so much that You never leave us where we are. You refine us. You work on us. You mold us to be more like Your Son, Jesus. With our heartfelt gratitude, we pray in His name. Amen.